Hey guys, it's Dev again. Here we are for episode four of the Devon Townsend podcast. The album Physicist came out in the year 2000. All right. Here I am on a Friday night. It is Good Friday, which is, again, very strange, specifically as this is usually the time of the year where you get together with loved ones or your parents or your family, or if you're fortunate enough to have a relationship that allows that. And to not be doing that is difficult, I know, for a lot of people. And Physicist is yet another difficult record to go through. More so now that I just took the opportunity to listen to it. I've long had problems with Physicist. And as a result, I haven't spent much time with this record. My thoughts when I think back to it tend to involve the fact that my intentions for it were very good. Yet my energy and my ability to complete it in the ways that I felt it deserved was just non-existent at that point for a couple of reasons. I would also suggest that if you are interested in these podcasts and you haven't had the opportunity to hear the Infinity One, which is uh, podcast number three, I would suggest taking that one in as this next piece here will make a lot more sense with that under your belt, so to speak. So Physicist was difficult for, when I think about it, two main reasons. One, it was after Infinity had, all the chips had fallen, after I had been in the psychiatric institution, after I had been through infidelity and decided that we would stay together and all sorts of ramifications of the infinity period in which I was so manic due to the culmination of circumstances that I have been describing for the past week here. And the other thing that made physicists so incomplete to a certain extent was it was the first record that I began to record myself. Up to that point, I had been in a studio, Red Stripe or Mushroom or Little Mountain Studios or, or whichever one of these facilities was open to me. And for those, I would use engineers for the most part. I would learn to do aspects of it myself. And in the case of Infinity, I mixed it myself for the first time. But really, I had never pursued the idea of recording myself up until this point. Infinity in its first week in Japan, sold a lot of copies. It was the only place that it sold very well. And in fact, a lot of the problems that I brought into my life stemmed from my time in Japan. Towards the end of Infinity, I actually moved to Tokyo for a short amount of time. And during that period, I did a lot of press and Infinity sold well, and it was at that point when all that psychological jibber-jabber became clear to the people at Sony, too. I went and stayed with Naoki and, and the people who, who were uh, involved with Player Magazine and 
Burn magazine. It was really a lot of Japanese culture in my world at that point. I felt on some level that I had been misplaced in society and I would actually be much more suited to live there. And when I got there and realized that, like any culture, once you're deeply involved with it, once you're there, not as a tourist, but as a resident to a certain extent, you recognize the true nature of the culture is, in the case of Japan, it was fundamentally different than what I had expected or anticipated. Least of which, everything was too short for me. I kept hitting my head on things. <laughs> but um, there were a lot of great people there that, uh, that made that whole thing uncomfortable as well. But because of that money that I had made from Japan, I managed to put a down payment on a house and I managed to get myself a modest studio set up. The house itself was one of these prefab houses that at the open house, when you go to it, when there's a whole neighborhood full of these prefab houses and everything is shiny and new, it looks like a mansion. It looks like a dream house. And the price of these houses were so cheap because they were way off in pit meadows. It was a municipality around Vancouver that I had never really spent much time in. And it was underdeveloped at that point. But if you've seen how some of these prefab housing communities come together, they'll take a piece of land, clear cut it, and then put these identical houses, maybe two or three different models that you could choose from. And there's no yard, but on the open house days, they would have brand new grass overlaid on top of this sort of industrial clear cut. So on a sunny day, it just looked like a dream. So I took that money and we put it as a down payment, bought this house. And then once I moved in, it was then that the depression started. The basement was unfinished. Once we got in there and it became clear that the area was far removed from everything else, it was underdeveloped to the point that when the sheen, the bloom came off the rose, so to speak, the grass died immediately. And you could see that underneath it, it was just sand. There was no history to the, to the soil. And the house, all of a sudden, you could feel like the cheapness of the construction and the fact that it started to warp too. In the beginning, it was all level. Then by the end, it's like if you had a, a, a soccer ball in the living room, it would always roll to one side. It was this underlying sense of, of uh, cheapness or weakness, I, I suppose, that really defined that. And so I put the studio into the basement, which was completely unfinished. And with it, I bought a Roland 24-channel hard disk recorder. It was, uh, I forget the name of it, but it was kind of cool. It was maybe about two feet wide and a foot in depth, maybe seven or eight inches at its highest point, had an internal hard drive, and you could record directly onto it. And at that time, we had zip drives and SCSI drives that we would keep all the information on. Also, I bought a pair of Hafler speakers that were very shrill sounding, but I think perhaps I had always been so enamored with the idea of getting an actual pair of studio monitors that these fit the bill and they were so cheap 
they were several hundred dollars for a pair of speakers that typically one would spend thousands on. And it wasn't until I got them home that I realized that the sound of this particular model was really unfriendly to the ears. I had bought an Ensonic sampler. I'd gotten rid of the ASR-10, regrettably. I really loved that sampler, but I got a new one, an Ensonic. And that was basically the rig. I had my GP100. Um, for physicists, I had a white ESP Explorer. I think that was the one. I still had the black Explorers and the, the Telecaster, but I think I chose to use the white one more than anything. And then halfway through, I began to really get into Physicist because I knew the songs were quality and I knew that they carried this story that I recognized was becoming very clear over the trajectory and the, the process of Ocean Machine to City to Infinity. And I was excited about it. So much so that by the time I got about halfway through the recording at home, I had done the drums at Hipposonic Studios. And halfway through the recording, I went to back it up because I was thrilled with what I had created. But having never backed it up before, I erased everything. I erased all the work I had done. So that meticulous attention to detail that was in the forefront of my mind for Infinity or, or City or Ocean Machine was out the window. And I just felt defeated by that. And the combination of where I was living, the fallout of Infinity, the fact I had erased this. Up to that point, I was kind of holding on to my frame of mind. But when I erased it, I just crashed. And I got depressed in a way that was just so bleak is the best way to describe it. Prior to the idea of physicists coming, and I think what typically happens with me during the gestation period of a record is there will be an indicator at some point during the process of the prior record where I may have a moment or a song idea or a phrase that makes me think, oh, that's where I'm going next. It's a weird kind of subconscious acknowledgement of an event or, or something. And, um, I'll give examples of those as the records progress. For example, Terria. I had the idea for Terria during Physicist when I was on tour in a van in Canada in the prairies. And the name and the overarching theme of that aesthetically came to me. And with Physicist, at the end of the infinity chaotic period, right before I went to Japan, I had an experience where, uh, and I, this whole talk of psychedelic drugs and everything, it's almost at an end here. The period in which I was so heavily invested in it is almost at an end, but not quite. So what I had done at the end of infinity is I had a friend and I, we did a ton of acid. And then I asked my friend to tie up my hands and feet 
and put me in a dark room and leave me there. And I went in there and it was almost like sensory deprivation. It was just totally black. And I remember my mind just exploded into mathematics. It was just this awareness at that point or this assumption that everything, emotions, colors, interpersonal relationships, food, money, everything is based on equations, formulas, that if you were able to consider these things in your life in a fractal type of sense, where you could just go into it and see where the parameters were and the edges were, that eventually you would come out of it saying, okay, love is an equation. This is the equation. Hatred is an equation. This is the equation. And it was very, it was very logical in a weird way. And sociopathic to a certain extent. A lot of times what you will hear again from some of these uh, people in the 60s who did a lot of uh, psychedelic exploration and even now with DMT and ayahuasca and all these things, there's this sense that a joke even that the high never goes away. You just have to get used to it. You can't unring that bell. And I remember coming out of that room and one of the first thoughts I had was, uh-oh. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, I just broke me. Something inside there now will never be functional in the ways that it once was. And I went to the bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror and I saw myself not as a celestial, white, glowing entity, like infinity in my mind I had perceived myself as. Instead, I saw myself as sickly. I saw myself as gray and oily. And I could see the veins. And I could see the bags under my eyes. And I could see the pores in my skin. And it was almost like this change in my psychological mechanisms was one rooted in almost seeing the truth of what I had allowed myself to become, what I allowed my internal fabric to be colored with. And I remember thinking right at that point, put my hands on the counter and I thought, this is your next record. It's going to be physicist and it's going to be this it's not something that i was excited about either it was just an awareness that that is where things were now headed so i went to europe at that point because during the strapping tours towards the end of the japanese dates I had played a lot of shows in Japan. On some of the shows, I had done both Strapping and Infinity. I did a this and that, yin and yang type of show in Japan. I remember at that point getting a call from a mutual friend of mine and the owner of Inside Out Records. And he was 
a friend to this day, Philippe, who writes for Rock Hard magazine or Hard Rock magazine in France. And he said, this is the label for you. I know you've been treading water with your solo material. He had done many interviews with me. He said, I know how much it means to you to have Ocean Machine and Infinity and, and all these other aspects of your creative personality heard by people. And I know you're uncomfortable with this whole strapping young lad thing becoming your identity publicly. He said, I think that Thomas at Inside Out would be ideal for you because he cares so much about the physical product and he's much more artistically minded and much more apt to allow me to take these journeys creatively that Century Media or any other label at that point would be very tentative about, very hesitant to let the artist travel in all these different directions. So I contacted Thomas and we had a conversation and we ended up getting along. And here we are 25 years later, we still work together and uh, I've got no desire to be with anyone else. Thomas has been my cheerleader and my confidant in terms of many of these creative ups and downs and, and left turns. And he was excited because he loved Ocean Machine and he thought Infinity was really good. And I went there and presented myself in a way that was very separate from the depression that was starting to come forth. I tried to be very uh, jovial and, and accommodating and conversational. Yet when I went back to Vancouver, I remember trying to get that loan for the house and having a panic attack in front of the loan officer, in front of the real estate agent. I just, I would break down. And if you've ever had a panic attack, it's a very strange experience. It comes out of nowhere and you are immediately immobilized emotionally, physically, conversationally. But I managed to suppress that because I knew that if I could get on with Inside Out and if I could continue my solo music in a way that allowed me to really experiment and really get into the artwork, then I think I could get myself back on track. I remember being in Germany, Cleva, where we had first signed the deal. And at that point, I became fascinated with the band Ween. W-E-E-N. When I was younger, I remember hearing Ween, and they had the Push the Little Daisies songs, and I, I always assumed it was a joke band. I assumed they were just snorting glue and then writing all this crazy music. So I never really paid attention to them. But while I was at Red Stripe towards the end of Infinity, beginning of Physicist, a friend came by and said, Hey, have you heard the new Ween album? It's called White Pepper. And I hadn't heard it. I had no interest in them because, again, I had assumed they were a joke band. And when he played that record, I fell in love with them because there was just something about the fact that each one of their records had many different styles on it. it had a rock song like Motorhead. It had a reggae song. It had a stupid song. It had a heart-wrenching ballad. It had all this diversity that was unapologetic. And then I started getting into the back catalog. And then while I was in Germany signing this deal, I was just gorging on that band. 
I had a little zoom box. It's a guitar effect with a speaker on it. In fact, if you've seen the inside of the Terrier record, there's a picture of me sitting on the stairs of that house that we had bought playing this zoom guitar box. And I had that with me during the meeting with Inside Out. So I would just listen to Ween, smoke a bunch of dope, and then play on this little Zoom thing. When I got back to Vancouver, I had to try and figure out this mess that I had made. Oftentimes, after being on tour, flying back into your hometown, if you're a musician, I'm sure you'll be able to relate to this, there's this sense of relief when you see your town coming. There's this sense of, okay, I'm home now. I can relax. But at this point, for the first time ever, that's not what I felt. When I was flying back, I remember looking down over Vancouver and thinking, oh, Jesus, there is so many fires that I have left here. And now I have to contend with them. And the first one, other than my relationship, which was just in a, a horrible place was the band because as I said in the last podcast here's a group of ripping players that believed in the music of Strapping Young Lad and were having to sort of suffer through this complex that I had thrust upon myself and everyone else and I recognized at this point how much they had tolerated on the back of this. And they wanted to keep doing Strapping Young Lad, and I didn't have the testicular fortitude, so to speak, just to say, I'm over it, guys. I don't want to do this. It's not right for me. I realized that. But perhaps because Strapping became popular, perhaps as a kid, I was never overly popular, so there was a sense of validation that came from being seen and being on tour with these hip bands, with this rocking group of guys. And because I was a very non-confrontational person, I had, it's almost as if my onstage persona became like a ventriloquist's dummy, where I would get on stage and just be intensely antagonistic to the audience because I knew that I was surrounded by a crew and a band and a social group that were, I mean, in some cases, very violent. So I felt like I could get away with this. I felt cool. And I didn't feel at that point like I could just let that go when I probably should have. I think Another reason why I maybe didn't just drop strapping at that point is I also have this irritating tendency to insist on finishing what I start. These podcasts, for example, now I'm going to get to the end of them. <laughs> Even if as I'm going through them, they're stirring these memories that have long been dormant. I said I would do them and so I will. It's the same thing with SYL. I had signed that deal. So I feel in hindsight that that played into it as well. But then what was I to do with this band? I remember going to rehearsal and Byron at that point was just, you know, irritated. 
And Jed was pissed off. And Gene was really pissed off. And I remember this is the time when his sunglasses came on and we would go to rehearsal and he would just say, all I see is blackness at this point. I just feel nothing but blackness. And I remember thinking, God, I, I don't know what to say. I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to say I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know how to, I don't know how to articulate this in a way that is going to be acceptable even. And then at one of these rehearsals, because keep in mind, we were still doing dates with strapping. I remember being at the rehearsal room and then thinking during a jam, I had the chords for the song Ohm off of the Christine EP, which is something that towards the end of these podcasts, I'll also go through. I'll go through a bunch of the more minor records by the end of it. Minor in my mind, at least. But I remember bringing those chords to the band and thinking, I just want massive major chords. And during the rehearsal, looking around the room and perceiving those three guys as gods. Up to this point, it's all been me. But then I saw them all as gods. I saw us as giants while we were playing. Unfathomably massive entities. And each one of us had like um like a thing i remember seeing jed at that moment as a chrome lizard <laughs> but it was just massive massive entities that when you look at yourself as a six foot person or a five foot ten six foot two whatever you are it's easy to think of it in terms of those dimensions but from a different frame of mind i just saw us as unfathomably massive entities, giants. And so I thought, okay, well, because I can't find the words to apologize, maybe what I can do until such time that I am inspired to do strapping and lad again, offer these guys the quote unquote opportunity to be my band for this next album that I was writing that was physicist that in my mind was heavy enough to warrant their involvement, but it was an entirely different aesthetic. Even a song like death, it was a different aesthetic. It wasn't strapping and they agreed, but it wasn't even begrudgingly. It was just kind of absently just like, sure, man, if that's what you want to do, sure. And so in my mind, I was doing them a huge favor by not breaking up the band because I knew how much it meant to them, but by finding a loophole in which we could still perform together, be together, and I would still be able to avoid heading back into the strapping young lad mindset, which since City I was petrified of and do physicist. And what was physicist at that point to me? It was a bleak environment in which I envisioned a spaceship flying through. It's almost like if you look at the chaos of infinity, if you look at that forementioned 
rubber band ball with all the different colors. Or if you look at any sort of chaotic imagery, any artist that has their finger in the idea of everything happening at the same time, there's typically a lot of color or at least a lot of colorful elements. And so the idea of this gray material that this spaceship would fly through was if that level of chaos, if that level of infinite things became so dense, the binary nature of our universe and our ability to perceive would be this gray goo. And the idea of the spaceship was, I want to fly through it as fast as I can to get out of this. And so sonically, when I started writing the songs for this, the main idea was this relentless speed and not a lot of fills and not a lot of tempo shifts. And if there was a tempo shift, as in devoid, there's a little retardando, it immediately goes back to that thing again. It's like being on a jet ski and from minute one, from second one with Namaste, the idea is you're off and you are going through this gray ether that is just the most condensed form of infinite reality that one could perceive manifesting itself as this gray material, like this nano material. It was also the turn of the century. It was just the year 2000, and there had been all this Y2K discussion of how everything was going to change and how everything was going to be uh, irregular and no one knew what to expect. And so it seemed to all be in line with what that evening, middle of the night, sitting in front of the mirror, looking at this gray, oily version of myself, was suggesting to me. Now, the gestation period for physicists was maybe about eight months. And during that time was when the depression really hit. So I had been to Germany. I signed the deal. I had talked to the band. I told them I wasn't wanting to do strapping, but I would still be uh, amenable to doing this project. And it was just six to eight months of profound confusion and depression and it's even hard to describe where I was at I had gained 65 pounds I lost all my hair it was almost like I had hair during City and Ocean Machine then in infinity it all just fell out like over the course of maybe six months there was you know I'd had a car that was kind of nice but then we ran out of money to pay for it monthly. So I had to get rid of it. And my parents gave me this old gray K car. And I remember trying to find things to do. I, I didn't want to write. I would go to sleep as quickly as I could at night. And then I would sleep until noon. And even I would get up in the middle of the night and just do five or six bong hits 
just constantly trying to hide from myself. And then I would wake up and just do five or six more bong hits. And then every half hour, every 40 minutes, I would go and just get high, get high, get high, get high. Which is probably the reason why I had to get rid of my car. Because it was costing me 20 to $40 a day. And I remember my wife at that point, she would get money for food and it was cash and she'd have it in her purse. And I would go into her purse and take the money and then try and take it in such a subtle way that she wouldn't, she wouldn't see that I was doing that. And of course she knew, of course she knew, but she was going through the same chaos that I had put everybody else through and myself and us. So she just didn't say anything. So my days would consist of waking up, getting high, and then I would drive around Vancouver to the places I knew I could get weed, and then I would come back and I would smoke it. Just smoke, 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 smoke. And I would wait for, there was like a, a procedure every day that included certain television shows. And I think those shows were, it was a show called Duckman, a cartoon called Duckman, a show called East Meets West. It was a cooking show. And then just a few other things that were on. But it was that procedure. And all I was trying to do was kill time until I could go to sleep again. That's what I did every day. Every day. I remember driving back from getting bags of weed. And I was so... The depression often manifests as um, chronic fatigue. So I would eat terrible food, just smoke, and then on the way home from picking up these bags of weed, I'd pull over to the side of the road and just fall asleep in the back seat. I couldn't stay awake. Even if it was a 20-minute, half-an-hour drive, I couldn't stay awake. And I remember being irritated by some of the music that was on the radio at that point. There was a Canadian artist who used to sing for I Mother Earth. And he had a solo project called Edwin. And the song was about the exaltation of being alive. Isn't it good to be alive? Isn't it good to breathe the air? And I remember being angry at him. <laughs> Not him, but the song. I'm like, no, it isn't. It fucking sucks. And it was this constant wrestling with myself to not allow suicidal thoughts to take over. And I would go to a psychiatrist every three days. And they would say, are you smoking weed? And I'd say, nope. Are you drinking alcohol? Nope. And what I would do is I would wait until the appointment was over and then come back and immediately start smoking weed. And it was almost like a struggle to get through two hours in the morning without smoking because it made me relatively present. Enough so that I could trick the psychiatrist into thinking I was doing fine. I remember one morning leaving and I had a hole in the basement where I was setting up the studio and it was all unfinished. So it was just two by fours and I had old couches and this makeshift studio and I had a big TV, big tube TV and just beside the TV was a plate of weed, bags of mushrooms and whippets 
which was this horrible carbon dioxide thing that you do and breathe into a balloon. It makes everything feel like there's a flanger on it for 10 seconds and then you kill 8,000 brain cells in one go. That and pornography. It was just, it was that. I was just so, and I was just getting fat and just, just hated myself. Didn't realize that necessarily at the time, but <laughs> clearly that's where I was. And because, like I had mentioned with City, I tended to find things that aesthetically followed suit with what it was that I was trying to put across musically, or at least what that musical inclination was suggesting to me, I had found this gray trench coat. And it wasn't even a trench coat. It was a, it was a coat that I found at a hardware store for welding. It wasn't like a stylish coat. It wasn't particularly good looking, but it was gray and it was a trench coat style. So in my mind, I thought it was like city except gray. And so when the record began to take shape and I started to recognize the certain things about it that were indicators as to where the record was wanting to go, the gray thing, the physics thing, the relentless speed. I also thought, I want it to sound like a pop record, though. And when I say that, oftentimes that's been confusing to the people in my professional world because they assume I'm talking about maybe the content or the structure. But it's always been, when I say I want it to sound like a pop record, sonically. I wanted that level of intensity that I had been dreaming of with the idea of Physicist, but I wanted it to still sound like that Metallica Black Album production. Maybe not the same sounds, but I wanted it to react to the limiting of FM radio in the same way that Sad But True did. So I started looking at this point because I had signed on with Inside Out and I had the opportunity to have a little bit more money to do the recording, I started looking for one of the engineers who had done that style. And there was a guy locally, because a lot of that Metallica Motley Crue stuff that sounded the way that I wanted it to sound, happened in Vancouver through Bob Rock, Randy Staub. And one of the other guys around town who did that, who was involved with that scene, his name was Mike Plotnikoff, and he had done, at that point, Digimortal by Fear Factory. And it was just a bigger sonic spectrum, more lows, more highs. It took up more real estate when you listen to it on a system. But I didn't have the money to hire him for the entire recording. I had enough money to hire him to track the drums over two or three days and then mix it which at that point I naively assumed was all I would need because I felt I was capable of doing what we needed to do on a production front. So again, in order to afford him, in order to make sure that the project was done within a reasonable budget, the money went to him and I had to scrimp on the drum studio. So we recorded the drums at Hipposonic Studios, which is a mixing room. There's a tiny live room, 
but it's not for drums at all. It was a low ceiling, tile walls. It was more of a tokenistic recording room. It was not a studio room at all. But I figured because we were going to mix it there, I could work out a deal with Rob, who ran the studio, that I could have Mike Plotnikoff mix. I could have him for two days to do the drums. We'd do the drums there. We'd get a reduced rate on the entire package. Bob's your uncle. In my mind, this was going to end up being this perfect amalgamation of speed and heaviness, but with that sonic real estate that those commercial hard rock records that that scene had been involved with were making happen. But as it turns out, I realized too late that much of the reason why those records and why Mike's records and why Bob Rock's records and Randy Staub's records sound that way is because they have humongous budgets or had humongous budgets and they were involved for every step of that recording's process. They were able to take into consideration the guitar sounds while tracking, the cymbal choices while tracking, how that would deal with those tempos or that tuning. And then as they were producing it, recognize when things were becoming too cluttered or pulling it back for the verse so that the choruses could punch. See, these are things that I have started to learn only recently. And at that time, I thought, no, no, no. We'll just have him track the drums. I'll go and put 900 tracks of shit on this, keeping in mind that I lost it and had to redo it with zero enthusiasm. When I redid all the sounds and all the samples for Physicist, I just had zero motivation. I was then depressed and I just slapped stuff on. And then when I went to record the vocals even, I had no energy. And I think this is why, in hindsight, I felt so uncomfortable with Physicist. Listening to it today, it's one of the pivotal records for me. If I look at those first three records, City, Ocean Machine, Infinity, as being the big three, if you want to look at it that way, this one's like the fourth. You know, it was as important, but just didn't get the attention. I'm not talking about public attention. I'm talking about my own. When I got to the studio to track the vocals, I did them back at Red Stripe again. And it was with Mateo again. And it was with that scene again, who by that time were leery of me, for sure. And sometimes openly hostile because some of the stupid things that I had done. But going back into that studio was my option. I had worked it out with Raymond, the studio owner, and I still had access to it. So when I went into Red Stripe to track the vocals for Physicist in the same environment that all that chaos and craziness had occurred with Infinity, all of that Christ complex, all of that intensity with all these characters that were so colorful in Infinity, when I went back there, I couldn't wait to get out of there fast enough each day. 
So I would track the vocals just with zero passion. And even though I was able to eke out the emotional content of these songs that I felt was necessary, when I listen back to it, you can hear that I was just so spent. A lot of times on Physicist, what I ended up doing to try and compensate for that lack of enthusiasm that has mired the record in my own mind for many years was I would just cover it up with distortion on Kingdom, on Death. You hear these vocal takes and because the vocal takes had very little enthusiasm, enthusiasm in terms of what I knew I wanted it to be, rather, it just was flat. And listening to the record now, I realize one of the ways in which I have been wrong in terms of my critique of physicists all these years is thinking that it wasn't correct. Thinking that that vocal performance and the off-putting mix, the real brittle sounding mix and the strange sounding drums and the really scooped bleak sounding guitars was something that needed to be redone. And although I felt that certain songs could use being redone, Kingdom in specific, because I could alter the lyrics for the Epic Cloud record and bring the intention of Kingdom full circle. Other than that, I realized on this listen here tonight that no, Physicist is exactly what it was supposed to be. At this time as well, I had been doing these projects with Jason Newstead, and then he wanted to do another jam. And so I invited myself and Gene to Oakland to jam with Jason. And Gene was just not playing. And by that, I mean, the reason why Jason and I had had fun together is because there was a very open improvisational dialogue that we had with each other. Even though we were and are on different pages, we had fun. Like, that was fun. And I need a drink. Water. So I thought, well, because we're having fun and because I've got this idea, I'll invite Gene down with me. And the first day that I'm there, I'm going to propose to Jason that we should put together a band called Physicist. But from minute one, Gene was standoffish. And for the whole time we were there, Gene was standoffish. We didn't jam at all. And there was no communication between him and Jason. Gene had his sunglasses on. There'd be a, a riff starting and he just wouldn't play. He just wouldn't play. And I was embarrassed. And the last time I had been with Jason was the experience where we were both on acid. And this time I was dealing with the depression. I had been through psychiatric institutionalization. And I all of a sudden started freaking out when I was there again. And I insisted he took me to the hospital so I could get medications. And Gene was not participating even conversationally at all. And it was just horrible. And so when I proposed it on the first day with Jason, his reaction was an immediate no. Just not just no, but almost like a scoff. 
like, you kidding? Do you think that I would join this? And I remember at that point thinking, oh shit, maybe I misread this relationship as well. So when we came home, it was just a combination of all these things during the recording that ended up fast forwarding slightly here in a record that I have had thought for many years to be incomplete. And it was only tonight when I realized that, no, that's what Physicist is. The nature of that record is exactly what those imperfections are. Those imperfections, if I was to do a complete remake of Physicist, which I've wanted to do for many years because I thought the material was really strong in some cases, I thought that would make this record what it should have been. And it's only tonight that I hear it and think, you can't recreate that. That's what it is. It's this weird sounding, bleak, uninspired vocal performance that is a record about remorse or depression. So what typically happens with me, with any project, is when that first moment of creative inclination, let's say, comes to me, you know, the, the, the prairie drive for Teria, the gray oiliness of myself for physicist, the moment in infinity where truth just magically, quote unquote, appeared. Each one of those moments kind of defines what I'm feeling the overarching vibe of the record should look like, not only sound like. So I typically start art right away. Even now, I've been working on the artwork for The Moth with Eloran for three years. I've been working on Thank You with Travis Smith for two years. I've been working on a number of ideas with a number of artists as the ideas start to clarify themselves. And with Physicist, this was one of the artistic troubleshooting moments that I've had. Because one of the things that I hate ending up with is a logo on a cover. It's happened a couple of times. Epicloud. Physicist. You know, there's this idea of just make a logo, put it on the cover, and in a pinch that will work. And I didn't want to do that. But I started the artwork immediately with a guy named Clint that I had met in Australia, where incidentally I had written a lot of physicists. I had written Planet Rain in um, Brisbane. There was another artist there named Rowan who had done all of our Christmas cards for the fan club that, that my wife was doing. And he was interested, Clint was interested in doing the artwork with me. But I was so eager to start, yet so unaware of where the record would go that I kept changing my mind the whole time. I started with, you know, maybe the ideas of the spaceship or, or this gray material. And then when the guys from Strapping Young Lad were involved, I then kind of recanted that and said, no, it needs to be a metal cover. It needs to be black. And so he would go through all these things and then I would pull it back and I knew he was getting frustrated. So, because the artwork is so important, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to invest part of my budget and have him fly to Vancouver and stay with me 
so he can participate in this experience and then make the art. But, <laughs> or rather I would say nuts, what ended up happening is out of the blue one day, I started recognizing that my testicles were growing. Now don't laugh, it's the truth. And the first few days I put it out of my mind, I thought, okay, well, you know, it's maybe it's, you know, I'm just perceiving this differently. Then over the course of a week, the left side of my scrotum got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I all of a sudden thought, man, this is a real issue, clearly. So I went to the doctor and the doctor said, okay, well, you have something called a varicocele. And what that is, is around the testicle, there's the vas deferens, which carries sperm. And if that gets infected and blocked off, that side of your testicle ends up within that membrane collecting fluid to the point where it's essentially elephantitis. You'll see pictures of people in Africa that have massive, massive testicles. And on some level, when we were kids, we used to think it was funny until it happens to you. And you're just like, wow, fortunately, being in the country that I'm in, they said, okay, well, we can fix this. And I had already booked the ticket for Clint to come out. And I said, well, how long have I got till I've got to go in there for the operation? And they say immediately. So while he was flying in, from Australia, I went into an immediate emergency operation in which what they did is they cut my scrotum open, basically from your, from your anus to your penis. They open it up, they take the testicle out, and then with a scalpel, they cut off the side of the infected testicle this accumulation of fluid in this membrane and then they sew it back up and the way that they have to package it because you can't just stitch it it's just i'm sure you've seen a scrotum they're a gong show the way that they have to let it recuperate is they squish it into what looked like a tube when i came to i remember after the morphine had worn off which incidentally was wonderful at that time. I thought, wow, that's, that's something maybe we should investigate. Fortunately, I uh, dodged that bullet. But I remember when I finally came to, and then I recognized what was going on within that part of my body, they had taped up the scrotum so it looked like King Tut's beard. It was this long tube of testicles basically two <laughs> and after a day my wife had to go pick up this poor guy coming in from the other side of the planet to learn about what I was doing with physicist and I was on the couch and it was such pain that I cried every time I woke up and then I would take the Percocet and then get high and then take another Percocet and then get high and cry. And he came for a week sitting in a chair 
beside me while I was crying because of my nuts watching Duckman and getting high for a week. And he finished the artwork, but uh, poor dude. <laughs> oh my God. Clint, I apologize. So there's an overview of the period of time in which physicist became what it is. And now I think the best way for me to get into the guts of this record is to look at the lyrical construct a little closer. In fact, when I was thinking about the Infinity podcast from yesterday, I realized that so much of these records is literal in the lyrics. A lot of times people, and I'm, I'm glad about this, feel they can adhere their own meaning to these lyrics to the point where it's very specifically based on their experience just by how vague maybe the, the language is. But as I was thinking about Infinity, I felt, man, I should have talked about some of those lyrics too because I think about Soul Driven. At the end, there's this monotone, the birth has occurred and the time has begun. It's the end of an age and the preparations must begin for a new time that takes so much work and will hurt in the beginning. Change always does, but no strength is not something you buy or you sell through aggression or fear. Only love and acceptance of faith will convince you that you're not alone and exist among friends, so have patience don't give in. So when I think about physicist and the depression and the fallout and all these things that if you've been paying attention to these podcasts, you're aware of now, when we start discussing these lyrical concepts from here on out, I think a lot of people may be surprised at just how literal these things are. There's not a lot of poetry to this. It's, this is what I'm thinking. This is where I'm at. So the first song on the record is Namaste. Namaste is a term a lot of times utilized in yoga or meditation or various spiritual belief systems that I think loosely is translated to, I bow to the light in you, or I respect that in you, which is that in me. It's, I participate in the Christ nature in you that is also present in I and with everyone else. Namaste. So starting the record with that song was deliberate in light of what I felt I had learned about the nature of interpreting my experiences as me being the center of the universe. Namaste was a way for me to say, I realize now on the other end of infinity that 
not only am I the center of the universe, but you are as well. We both are, as is everything. Namaste. But there's no way to be able to, in any practical way, in any logical way, describe the experience of participating in moments of emotional significance in a way that doesn't seem clumsy and gauche. So lyrically, as I'm listening through to Namaste, follow the way, follow the way, holding mother, follow the way, follow the way, I knew we'd come through to stay. What have I learned? The beginning of this album immediately is meant to be light speed with the vocals, one note, basically saying, all right, what have you learned? And so the chorus is meant to be a summary of what's to come for the rest of the record. All life, it never goes away. You never will betray. When words have gone away, remember, namaste. Remember, in absence of an ability to define this, remember that the thing that you feel is specific to you is the same thing that others feel is specific to them. The second song is Victim. Now, I think overarchingly, Another concept that plays through every piece of work that I've done to this date is sex. And that stems from childhood sexual experiences that were abusive. Nothing to do with my family, but just my introduction to what sexuality is was stunted. As a result of that, I was in very few relationships. In my entire life, I've been in three relationships. Three. In fact, in my entire life, I've been in two physical relationships. Even as a younger child or as a teen, when physical relationships were presented to me, I balked at it every time. And it wasn't because I didn't want to. As a male, even, I've been obsessed with sex my whole life, but also obsessed about it in a way that ultimately led me to making decisions based on what my perception of what I thought sex was versus what it actually is. And I think going back to City and AAA and the idea of you never made the potty grade, I think a lot of my scatological humor, a lot of my connection to sex, physicality, is, or at least has been, rooted in something that was an abstraction rather than what it actually, actually is. And victim the second song on Physicist refers literally to victim mentality. 
One of the games that I played in the basement of that house, in this little, you know, basically floppy basement with just no decorations, just a bong and a TV and just, you know, gross, depressive, masturbatory ugliness. And I never play video games. I'm just not a fan. But at that time, I was playing every day this game called Wipeout on the first version of the PlayStation. So the intro of Victim, three, two, one, go, is the intro of that game. Because I had played it so much during that time. And the speed that you could kind of get accumulated in that game was probably on some level also inspiring to the overwhelming sense of relentless momentum that physicist has. So that's how Victim starts with that video game countdown. The whole idea of the victim mentality, the whole idea of it's not my fault, it's other people's fault or responsibility. I remember even saying to people during the infinity time, my creative process is so important to me that even if you don't like it, it's your responsibility to deal with it. I never thought it's my responsibility to change it. No, it was other people's responsibility. A lot of time, clinical narcissism, which I don't believe I was, but a lot of times that also can manifest with a victim mentality. Just it's everybody else's problem. It's everybody else's fault. So victim was not a song based on romanticizing that, but more so laying all these cards on the table for myself and saying, okay, let's observe where we are and let's draw some conclusions. And the whole idea of the chorus, you know, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. Just get me out of here. Get me out of here. I just get me out. The second verse. It's questions, but the answers lyrically are very pragmatic. So how many times is it violent? Everything is violent. When is it happening? Right now, right now, right now, right now. The whole idea of the infinite present became sort of a centerpiece during the physicist time as well, based on the awareness that if infinity is an actual concept, if the idea of infinity is real, where in every direction, in every dimension, in every plane, as far as you can quantify, is infinite, then the idea of moving in any direction, no matter how fast you go, no matter how, how determined you are, you never move if it is infinite. So the idea of participating in the present, for me, 
became rooted in this awareness on the back end of infinity that there is no goal if it's infinite. So the idea and victim of I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go, but it's happening right now, right now, right now. How many times? Where is it? Right here. How many times? Right now. So then it goes to Material. And Material was an interesting song as well. Perhaps in the same way as Life. Perhaps in the same way as Christine. There's the idea that Material is a conscious decision creatively to make a lyrical statement that is based on optimism. So if we listen to the lyrics in material, out of man and motor, out of manic mode, this I swear, this I swear, this I swear to you, I've got one more ticket to ride. I've got one more reason to write. I've got one more, take him alive. Give me one more try. Literally saying to myself and saying to those around me, please don't give up on me yet. I know and I've seen the ways in which I've been wrong, but I know I can get through this. And I remember actually having a photograph of myself, the same one, the same photo shoot at least, that the picture of me in the album was from. But in this one, I had sort of normal hair and I was smiling and I looked content. And I remember putting that picture up on my studio wall saying, you're going to get there. You're going to be content. Don't give up on this. And I remember thinking some days, this is intangible. There's no way I can reach that. With the frame of mind that I currently have, that person up there is so far removed from anything that I can comprehend at this point. But the idea that I had on some level, the awareness or presence of mind to have that as a goal is where material came from. So the chorus, these are the days. So just let them roll as they roll and be all you are because you're beautiful material. It's almost like raw material. And in the middle of material, you hear the Star Trek theme. Da, 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 da. With that augmented violin thing behind it going blah, 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 blah. And I think not only do I like that piece of music, but I think it also contributed to that idea of the virtual spaceship that is hell-bent on getting through this gray, infinite space. And at the end, the last lyric in Material is, here's that truth again. And that refers to truth from infinity. It's almost like physicists acted as a way to try and quantify what had happened mathematically, musically, and then find a way out of this. Perhaps there was a part of me that didn't believe in the infinite. 
who knows? But the idea of here's that truth again was pivotal to the song material. Because in the chorus, it's an affirmation. Just be, be who you are. You're beautiful. Here's that truth again. Give me one more try. Next song is Kingdom. Now, Kingdom was redone for the Epic Cloud album. And I believe that that version vocally is superior by leaps and bounds to what was on Physicist. In fact, in retrospect, one of the main components to my dissatisfaction with Physicist was the vocal performance of Kingdom because I recognized that the verses of Kingdom were meant to be it's almost like you're on trial. So speak your truth. So the verses are, I wonder why. I wonder why I wonder why. I've come undone. Okay, I know I missed it. The point I mean, I missed it good. And if I could change it, good God I would. Stay with me. Sometimes I say Lord. Sometimes I say love. But I think there was, again, that bleakness of this version of Kingdom that has an element to it that I could not recreate. But the vocals on this version of Kingdom in the verses suck to me. They suck. And this is another example of me just taking that, not having the energy to do with it what I felt I was being drawn to do by the music and then just phoning it in. I had to get the fuck out of the studio. I didn't want to be there. Put echo on it, put distortion on it. See you tomorrow. But Kingdom, what's it about? It's about infidelity. Basically, that's it. Even the pre-choruses seem to be a very literal explanation from me to whomever in my life would choose to listen. Now I see the way it's headed. Down and down, the truth descended. Have it here and without worry. Talking about weed. Baby, please, there is no worry. I'm fine. And I think that line came after being in a psychiatric institution. I remember I had romanticized my creative situation to the point where I almost felt like being considered crazy by people close to me was a convenient place to hide. Because if you're crazy, like legitimately disturbed in that sense, there's no way that you can have a conversation with people who are not that way and come to some sort of rational decision if there are problems or if there's roadblocks you're trying to get through. So by being told I was crazy and by internalizing that dialogue, I became very comfortable with that to the point where it could be a place to hide. And when I was finally admitted to a psychiatric institution and I had to spend time with people who were legitimately troubled, 
not just naive artists that were going through some typical psychedelic mess, but people who had chronic mental illness, schizophrenia, bipolar, borderline, any number of them. And the way those facilities are structured is that you spend time with each other basically throughout the day. And then there's several moments where you can eat or have a smoke break or, or what have you. And then you have your own room, but it's very much you're interacting with other people. And it only took me maybe three or four days to recognize that, oh, I wonder if I'm putting this on. I wonder if these psychological aberrations in me are within my capacity to control. I've just not been in a situation where I've had to. It's like becoming a father or becoming a parent. A lot of things that you feel you're not capable of doing, you don't recognize until it's put to the test that if you don't have a choice, yes, you do it. But it's almost like if you have a choice, you can say, oh, I could never be a parent. Oh, I could never do this. Oh, I could never skydive. I could never play the guitar, what have you. And I think we internalize that dialogue to the point where it becomes our reality. What we say to ourselves, we end up becoming. And I think I had told myself I was crazy. Therefore, I didn't have to rationalize anything. I didn't have to change. And when I was finally in that institution around people that had no choice, that had no choice, chemically, I recognized, oh my God, what a fool. This is well within my capacity. So I think the chorus for Kingdom, there's no worry, I'm fine, was a throwback to that. It's almost like saying... I recognize that things are a mess, but just, just stay, stay with me. I'll work through it. Into the midsection, ego, it's only a soul. What that alludes to is the importance that I had placed on my creative process and how important I perceived myself or my soul to be. It's the ego. To remove yourself egotistically from situations, criticism, praise, anything, it's an essential step to at least attempt to learn, at least in my case. And that line in Kingdom was almost trying to summarize the toxicity of that period by saying, hey, you know that thing? that you considered to be the most important part of our physical and psychological and spiritual universe. It's just a soul, dude. You're just a person. So towards the end of kingdom, it says, now I see the way I'm headed down and down. The youth descended hell is here, but it has no fury like this woman. Still, there is no worry. I'm fine. <laughs> uh. 
It's fucking funny. Death is the next song. All right, so... Death. I wrote that song... to appease... in my mind, the strapping guys. See, we'll still do brutal music. It'll be like City. I guarantee you. Check out this song, Death. What could be more dark than that? Death. However, as I started writing it, I recognized that its aesthetic was very much in line with everything else on Physicist, as are all the songs that you write during a certain period of time, typically, in my mind. So death became a reference to the spider dream. Now you know what death is. And the voice in the beginning of death is actually a sample of Deepak Chopra. <laughs> Just pitched down. And so I wanted it to be heavy, like S-Y-L. But it didn't have that same... I don't know, maybe it was humor that defined City. It had this bleakness to it. And that was another example of just screaming into a microphone, putting distortion on it, then bailing from the studio so I could go back home and watch Duckman and get high. Which is interesting because the one line in death that I think is super appropriate to this whole thing. I was raised in a part of British Columbia called Surrey. There's a Surrey in the UK as well. I guess because Canada's part of the Commonwealth, we share similar names. I was from Guilford in Surrey. <coughs> so the middle of death has a line that says, what's your hurry? Homegrown Surrey weed. <laughs> and that's what Surrey was famous for to a certain extent. There was just... ACDC, Trans Ams, and Weed. Devoid, the next song. I named it that because it had my name in it, and I felt that it was a play on words that would encapsulate this period. So, this is another, in a sense, throwaway song that I do like in hindsight. And it was also rooted in the idea that I wanted this whole album to be one relentless, bleak tempo. Just flying through the gray, infinite goop. And I think there's a carry-through on Devoid lyrically that reminds me that although Physicist in its entirety was meant to be an apology and a statement of, I understand what I did. I won't do it again. It was clear to me when I heard the last song, Forgotten, which I will talk about when we get to it, that I still kind of missed the point. I still kind of missed the point. And one of the examples of me missing that point on physicist was the lyric in Devoid that says know that this no one left no one behind and then the vocals in the background 
in a remorseful way are saying, the only one, the only one, the only one. Now the next song is one of my favorite songs I've almost ever written, actually. And I've always wanted to do this one again and do it properly. But the times that I've tried to do it again, it it's not working. So there's something about this that's right and a lot about it that's wrong. But the song, The Complex, is referencing the Christ complex. I think that I hadn't realized up until quite recently how common a Christ complex actually is. You look at all these cults. You look at all these people that think they're Jesus even. I just looked it up on Wikipedia. So here is the definition of a Christ complex. A Messiah complex, Christ complex or savior complex is a state of mind in which an individual holds a belief that they are destined to become a savior today or in the near future. The term can also refer to a state of mind in which an individual believes that they are responsible for saving or assisting others. So the song, The Complex, is directly referencing what I had recognized was a Christ complex in myself. And how that misinterpretation of the experience of participating with the present, participating with the oneness, how I misinterpreted that, the ramifications of that, and that's what this song is about. Falling, watching ships go down. Falling, watch it all go down. Falling out of line. Falling out of time. More than meets the eye, murder needs your mind. What I mean by that line is what I felt was important for me to do as a participant in Strapping Young Lad, there was no way for me to do it accurately in the way that that music demanded me to do it unless I committed to that murderous frame of mind. So continuing with this song, and it's funny when I say these lyrics out loud, I've heard other musicians recite their own lyrics and to just recite it with the gravitas that I believe was intended with them you sound like you believe your own hype. You sound like a douche. And I hear it now. But maybe for the sake of this, I'm just going to put that aside because these lyrics do mean something to me. A lot. All of this stuff means everything to me. In a lot of stra strange ways. Still. Following by sight, following through night, more than a keen eye, murder needs you. And the chorus, this is the first summary of that period, maybe the second after Namaste. And you're not the only one, child, and the battle must be won. When the seed is in the ground, you will see what you have found. And in the last chorus, and you're not the only one, child, many battles have been won. Beyond the sea, 
beyond beyond the sea, beyond the ground. You will seize or you will drown. It's almost like there's no sympathy here. If you want to get out of this, you need to understand what it means to be accountable for your own decisions. And the idea is, well, that apologizing profusely all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. It's of no value in a lot of ways. So the chorus, or after the chorus, so let them burn, let those fires burn. It's tattooed on your face. The idea is it's, it's something that once you've done it, you can't undo it. It's a matter now of forgiving yourself, which seemed desperately hopeless. How could I forgive myself? I remember driving around thinking, going back to the whole golden child thing from my childhood. I'm thinking, how could I have done these things? Me, I don't do this. I'm the special one. And I remember being at a stoplight with that thought in my mind and it just seemed preposterous to me. I remember thinking, I must be missing something because there's no way I could have done this. I don't do those things. Everyone knows that I don't do those things. So the last line of the complex, beyond the sea, beyond the ground, you will seize or you will drown. So let those fires burn, let them burn. Just let it go. Forgive yourself, basically. Next song is Irish Maiden. Why is this song called Irish Maiden? Well, because it's basically immediately apparent to me that it was derived from the song Lost for Words from Iron Maiden, from the Power Slave album. And I also think Irish Maiden referred to, on a lyrical front, my mother, who was of Irish descent. And the reason why my mother played into this, well, for many reasons, of course. I mean, all of us have got these, these connections to our lineage. I still think the direct reference to her in this is because I had, oh my God, I dragged her through the infinity thing in just some, I mean, face palming ways, insisting that she sat in the studio beside me while I sang Christine, you know, in my stupid white clothes. <laughs> and then the worst, I hadn't seen Beeve, who was the bass player in Devin Townsend Project and one of my closest friends in my life still to this day. I hadn't seen him since we were kids because we used to jam when we were 12 and 13 in our parents' garages and I hadn't seen him for years. And it wasn't until being high on mushrooms in his house 15, 20 years later that we started to, you know, sort of re-explore what it meant to be in each other's lives. And one of those moments, he came over to the house and in the basement of this strange, almost like black hole sun type house that we were living in, 
In this unfinished basement, there was also a crawl space that you could go into. Completely unfinished, just concrete and dirt and dust and what have you. But when I was at my lowest point of depression, I remember telling people that I was going to move into the crawl space and I was going to convert it into something called Manland. And it was going to be a series of tubes that you could crawl through with different themed rooms, a lot of which had crazy things to do with sex. And I just would, <laughs> I never did it, of course. But what I did was I would get super high and just sit in the crawl space thinking. And I remember when Beav started coming back into my life, he'd come over and he'd be like, hey, what are you doing, man? I was like, hey, you know, what I was thinking of doing is doing nine bong rips and sitting in my crawl space. And because he's Beav, he's like, okay. <laughs> And I remember sitting in the crawl space, all fucked up, and there was a ring at the front door. And I came up and it was my mom and dad. And I was just loaded. And I thought at that point, you know what? There's no use trying to hide this. They know. They were there for all of this shit. So why not invite them into the crawl space? So... I was just messed up and I brought my mom and dad into the crawl space and the look of disappointment on their face was just so palpable. My mother especially was just like, what the fuck has happened to you? And I was saying, oh, I'm going to turn this into man land and Beav sitting in the corner going, whoa. <laughs> So finally my mom and dad left and my mom was almost in tears and I came back down and I said to Beav, I was like, you don't think I'm crazy, do you? And Beav goes, oh, you're the craziest motherfucker I've ever met in my life. Let's get high again. <laughs> and so we did. So Irish Maiden, I think in a lot of ways, was referencing the the oddness that I had put my family through as well. And even towards the end of Irish Maiden, where I'm trying to make that proclamation nihilistically in the middle, life is nothing, this life is nothing. But the turnaround is, the rain is just one of the earth and the sun, the pain is here but still we carry on. Next song is Jupiter. And Jupiter is, I think, I think in hindsight, the predominant theme in the song Jupiter is my connection to drugs at that time. Just the relentless wanting to avoid and hide from reality through my intake of whatever I could get. And in fact, the song Warrior from Sky Blue is a callback to Jupiter. And when we get to Sky Blue, I'll, I'll reference that a little further. 
But Jupiter is almost a conversation with yourself, like an internal dialogue. I know you, at least I think I do. Everything's changed, but in the days that are so dark, wonderful, it's wonderful, drugs. And then in the chorus, it's just almost like a resignation. It's almost like that triumph that you thought you would be able to achieve during the highest point of delusion during infinity in the background worked itself out in a way that was anticlimactic in the most overwhelming way. Quietly, we set our worries be. We let our worries be. Silently, we give our souls to the sea. It's almost like through this partaking with a synthetic form of creativity or, or wonder or love, where you think you're making these great strides creatively, silently, quietly in the background, you've given it away. You've given yourself away. So in the midsection it says, but I never even had a chance to say goodbye. I never had a chance to end it all silently, carefully, quietly. Again, referring to any number of the events that happened during infinity. So the end of this song is a resolve when the voice goes up an octave. It's almost like through the octave raise at the end, it's almost like the character, if you want to look at the singer in that song, recognizes the truth and what's being said. Silently, we've set our worries free. Quietly, we give our souls to the sea. And then the end, da-da-da-dun, bam, da-da-da-dun, bam, da-da-da-dun-dun-dun. That whole ending, da-da-dun, is referencing the band Zimmer's Hole. I had produced the Zimmer's Hole albums, and that was Jed, Byron, and Val's band. If you haven't heard Zimmer's Hole, you should check it out. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty funny. And then the last song, Planet Rain. This is the last song. Forgotten is, um, I don't know. I, I don't know how to pronounce it. Addendum? You know what I'm saying. It's like after there's this little bonus. Da -da 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 -dun, and that's what Forgotten is. But the actual song, the climax of this album, was Planet Rain. This song was written in Australia, in Brisbane, as I had mentioned earlier, on the corner of a bed in a hotel. And this is a formal apology to my friends, to my wife, to the band, to God, to the infinite, to everything. And because one of the fundamental motivating factors for me creatively, even to this day, has been the sexual dysfunction that has manifested in my psyche as a result of abusive experiences as a child, I never understood relationships. I never understood sex, yet obsessed by it. And that combination 
of circumstances led to a lot of anger, ultimately. Anger at myself. Anger at the people I was in relationships with. Angry that I could never rationalize having a one-night stand. And so, for Planet Rain, I met a lady and had her sing the word love throughout this song. I had never met her. I had never seen her since. In some sense, that was an analogy for a one-night stand. And the whole song is based on feeling like the mistakes that I had made were primarily rooted in me just trying to understand love and loving and not misinterpreting those things or confusing them with a physical connection. So the whole song is the climax, the whole song, but the tag is where it basically summarizes that whole period. Everything through Steve Vai up till infinity, in fact, up till the end of Jupiter, is summarized, and then the intention was to let it go after Planet Rain, psychologically. So the lyrics basically start by saying, what have we learned from this we exercise? What have we earned now that it's over? What can we say? What are we doing here? Everything's changed. Everything stayed the same. And then the voice says, but it's quiet now, quiet now. And then the other side, left brain, right brain, ends up screaming, but it's the end of the world. And the other side is trying to console. It says, quiet now, quiet now, but it's the end of the world. Over and over, quiet now, quiet now. It's the end of the world. It's the end of the world. <laughs> What if we change? And what if we're finished here? Can it be saved? Does anyone even care? That's the battling with suicidal thoughts. And then the whole idea that was alluded to at the end of the complex with you will seize or you will drown comes back with so many dream, so many make the grade, so many fail and so many fade away. In fact, if we look at infinity lyrically, on the song War, there's a line that says, uh, God is in the mountain as is in the rock, and God is not concerned about keeping stock. So keep rocking, keep rolling, trade in the minute for a minute that isn't there. Moving on to the midsection of Planet Rain, it then says, Show you've a soul by crying. And the reason that line is in there is because at that point I couldn't cry. I didn't know how to cry. It's like, come on, man. Then after that midsection is the most important part of the record. Up the octave. What have we learned from this we exercise? What have we lost loving? And that's why it says loving, 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 loving. 
love, love, love. What have we lost by loving? What have we lost by trying to understand what this means? And then there's a breakdown and it says at the end, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry already. I'm so sorry. I know now, so slow down. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Love, 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 love. And the rain falling at the end was taped outside of the Red Stripe Studios one day during infinity during a thunderstorm. And at the end, it says in this quiet, resigned way, I'm so in love with you, my baby. You're my only one, my only one. And then it just stops dead. Forgotten, the last song, is about sex. And it's about ugly, perverted sexual thoughts. And I think in hindsight, because at the time I put it on there, thinking it was just an oddity, but hearing it now, I recognize that that same dysfunction, that same connection to an abusive sexual relationship on some level manifests in some crazy covert ways. And hearing forgotten makes me realize why it just didn't end there, why it needed to go on to Alien and Sincestro and the Devon Townsend Project and Casualties of Cool and Ziltoid and now Empath. So anyway, my friends, that's the end of episode four. That was Physicist. We'll see you next time for Terrier. Dev out.